Mike's uh, baptism, but I, I think that was, uh, was that the first one for you, Lance? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. Well, he's on a roll. Good deal. Um, in 1993, Hathaway asked the question that so many throughout history had asked before. And he asked the question, what is love? Does anybody remember Hathaway? Okay, that's a few of you are old enough. <laughs> You've got, you got to be right in the sweet spot, right? Gen Xers. Uh, to know that, know that song. What is love? And that, that question has been asked um, so many times because what we experience of love is often very far from what we expect of love. Does anybody agree with that? If you're married or you have been married, you probably agree with that. What, what you experienced in, in love and marriage was very far from what you expected of love in marriage. And as a society, we have a whole lot of half-truths about love and things that are just plain wrong about love. And so the question for us is, how can we love God and love others with God's agapao kind of love if we don't even know what love is? And, and that's why in the second week of this series, I gave us kind of a working definition for love. Love is what happens when an individual is prompted by God's Spirit to respond to humanity, uh, people, with the motives and movements of God in a material way. And we use John 3.16 as kind of the basis, the foundation verse for that. We said, um, God so loved, that was his motivation, right? His own love. God is love, and that love motivated him to act. And, and where did he direct his love? To, towards the world. God so loved the world. That was the movement. That was his action. He moved towards the world in love. And it, and it says um, that he gave his only son. And so we see this idea that in a material way, in a physical way, God gave a gift to humanity. And so we have the motive and the movement and the material part, the physical part of love expressed even in just one verse, John 3, 16. And I would suggest to you that the number one place that this kind of love, this agapao love, should be shown or should be seen is in the home between a husband and his wife. If, if dad and mom love each other, with the kind of love that, that God has, if they understand love and they love each other this way, then children grow up understanding what real love is. They understand, they learn what real love looks like and how it acts. And then guess what? They replicate that in the world as they grow up. So today, we're going to wrap up this series going back to the very beginning where the concept of marriage was first introduced, and where God began to clarify the boundaries and expectations of love. So we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now I want to make sure right off the bat that we understand some really important things about this verse. What God was not saying 
was that every person who ever walks the earth should be married. Because a lot of people um, look at this verse and, and, and they begin to have the feeling that, well, marriage is expected, that this is what you're supposed to do. And so there's a lot of people, single people, who don't like talking about love within the church because they believe that the expectation is that you have to be married. And yet we go to the New Testament and Paul says, I, I wish that more of you were like me, single and able to focus only on God and what God wants. In fact, Paul goes into this whole big discourse and, and he says, look, when you're married, you have to consider what your spouse wants. You have to take care of their needs. You have to spend energy and time dealing with them and taking care of their needs. But if you're single, you can just go wherever God tells you and do whatever God, God wants. There isn't anybody else to bring into that setting. And so God is not saying in this verse that you were created to be married. That you have to be married in order to find fulfillment. And there are preachers out there who will tell you that. We only find fulfillment as, human, as humans when we're in relationship with another person, with a husband or a wife, and then you can be complete. So if, if you are one of those um, people who believe in the concept of uh, soulmate, don't raise your hand if that's you, okay? Because what's coming next, isn't you're not going to like it. <laughs> If you believe in the concept of a soulmate or that, that God has chosen a person for you in the world and it is your job as a human to search the entire planet to find that one person that God has selected just for you and when you find them, it is unicorns and rainbows for the rest of your years, a happily ever after for the rest of your life. Listen, if, if you believe that, let, let me just say, that idea of a soulmate that God's chosen one person for you, it's like Taco Bell. It sounds really good, but in the end, it's just you alone in the john. That's, okay, because th that's where you're going to be. And so, and so what happens if you have that thought that there's a soulmate, that there's one person out there, if you marry somebody thinking they're the one... And, and remember, our expectation of love often is not our experience of love. And so you marry that one person and life doesn't go just the way you think. What do you say? Well, this must not be the one. I must have not found the one. And then you're walking around somewhere. You go to a school reunion. You see that guy you haven't seen for a long time. And you go, oh, this is the one. I made a mistake. I chose the wrong one. God, you had this guy over here. And I missed him. And I did this. And so... Guess what? Because I didn't find the one that God chose for me, I can ditch this one and move to another one. It's not God's, God's plan. God does not have one person for you out in the world, and, and, that's, and that's it. And he does not expect every single person in the world to be married. That's not what this verse is saying. God wasn't saying that you can't be single or that singleness was somehow less than coupleness. He was saying, in the context of the passage, that it's not good for mankind to be alone on the earth. Mankind, humanity, you and I, we need relationships. We need relationships with other people. And, and so um, understand the, the, the process, what has happened. This is Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter one, what do we read? 
God created the heavens and the earth, right? The sun, the moon, the stars. He created the animals, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and all the animals around on the ground. And, and this is what he told them. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And, and then he said, this is very important, he said to every animal and every plant, you are to reproduce after your kind. So when the mama bear and the papa bear get together, they make baby bears. They don't make raccoons. And when the pear tree gets together with whatever pear tree gets together with, it makes pears, not oranges. Right? So after his kind. So this is what happened. Like God has set all of this in motion. He's created all of these animals. He's given them a command. Go and make babies and, and do it after your kind. He set the, the rule. This is what happens. And then Adam comes along, and Adam is the only creature on earth at the time who doesn't have a mate. I think that's important. I think it's important because um, what's going to happen next? Adam is looking at all of the animals, and he's recognizing that every animal has somebody and more animals. And they're doing what God had created them to do, and I don't have anybody to share my life with. I don't have anybody like me. I don't have anybody who looks like me. I can't reproduce. I can't fulfill this command of God to fill the earth and subdue it and, and to make children after my kind. What am I going to do? And so look at the um, next verse here. Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the seed. We talked about that already. And uh, Adam named every living creature, whatever name he gave it, that was the one that stuck. And the man gave names to all the livestock, birds, heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. And so here, here's the idea. Names were very important in um, ancient culture, especially Hebrew culture. When something received a name, when a young boy received his name, it wasn't just a connection to the family. It was about his future. It was about who he was as a person. You go back into Scripture and you look. Um, Jacob and, and, and Esau and Isaac, their names are tied to their personalities. It's, it's, in, it's incredible. And so naming something was really, really important in those days. And so Adam studied the animals. He watched them. He watched how they interacted with each other, how they behaved and functioned. And then he gave them fitting names for each animal. This wasn't just this flippant kind of uh, thing. God could have named the animals easy enough, right? God could have just said, oh, this is a giraffe, and this is what you call it. But that's not, hap that's not what happened. See, God wanted Adam to notice that every other animal had a mate that was similar but different. He wanted Adam to, to see how they interacted, how they cared for their young how some of them were more kind of loners and, and some of them were fiercely loyal. God wanted Adam to come to the same conclusion that God already knew. That it wasn't good for Adam to be the only human on the earth. And the process of him naming the animals and seeing what was going on and recognizing that he's the only one of his kind on the earth, that was the point of what God was doing in having him name the animals. He needed human relationship. He needed other people, another person that was fit for him. And, and so let's uh, look 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs. Remember, the, 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 the Hebrew word is that he took part of his side. So rib, uh, bone, flesh, uh, nerves, blood vessels, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and he uh, took his rib, closed up the place with the flesh, and the rib, the flesh that God took, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. It, this is, and just, I'm just going to throw this out for you ladies, because sometimes you get a bad rap. Uh, and we talked last week about how women didn't have any power or authority or, 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 or whatever. So th- this is an interesting thing. The, the Hebrew words that are used, when, when God formed man from the dust of the earth, right? That says the mud, he took mud, he formed man like on the ground. The word formed is the same word that is used of a potter who is making a, a piece of clay, he's forming a lump of clay into something. But the word that is used here, uh, and this is the ESV, so it's a little different. Um, uh, the word translated, maybe your NIV Bible, the word made is, is built. And so the, the Hebrew word that's used, it's formed for man, but he built the woman. And, and the Hebrew word built uh, has a much greater idea of intention with it. And so God made the woman with intention and, and purpose. He took some of the man, and he took the man, how man looked, how man functioned, his anatomy, and he built a woman that would be compatible with him. There's an incredible amount of, of tension and, uh, intention and purpose going into this little thing that we kind of just gloss over really quickly. So once Adam learned this profound truth, that he wasn't compatible with a single other creature that God had created, even, by the way, dogs and cats, because this is what I get all the time. Well, I don't, I don't have to be in a relationship with anybody. I have a dog. I have a cat. I, okay, your animals are great companions for you, and I'm happy that you have your animals. I, I really am. I'm glad for you. But, it, but an, a dog or a cat does not replace human interaction in your life. And it was never supposed to. It could be great companionship, but you cannot have a talk about your dog's hopes and dreams this idea is about the future. It doesn't work, okay? So, so just understand that while they are good companions, they don't replace human interaction. Just the way, it's just it's my opinion. If you find a Bible scripture that contradicts me, you please bring that to me. Let me see it. Uh, you won't, anyway. So, not only was the man alone, But he also recognized that he had this desire to share life with somebody else so that he could do what God had commanded every other creature on the earth to do, to fill the earth and subdue it after its kind. And it's only after Adam comes to this realization that God then creates woman. And and so what he says, what Adam says next really makes a lot more sense. He, He says, he says this. Now that he's seen her for the first time, he's seen all these other animals, every other animal in the whole wide world, and there were lots more back then than there are today. And he says, finally, at last, this person looks like me. That's what the text is saying. They look like me. 
Nothing else looks like me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's going to be called woman because she's taken out of, out of man. And, and the, Corey's joke is that she's called woman because it's, whoa, man. Whew, she's good looking. Okay. So God then instructs me. Remember Moses wrote uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, five Pentateuch, uh, also known as the Torah. Moses wrote that during the time that the Israelites were wandering in the desert. So the 40 years that they were wandering in the desert, God was feeding this information to, to uh, Moses. And so Moses adds this at the, at the end, the next verse. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave or cling or be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Adam had seen literally every other creature on the face of the earth, but now there was finally somebody who looked like him, who was made from the same stuff that he was made from and he was incredibly happy. Um, Moses adds... This is what's going on. Man leaves his father and mother and holds fast or is united to his wife and they become one. God takes one and he makes two. And then he says, you two spend your lives becoming one again. And that really is the struggle, right, for you and me. How do I, um, I, I love this person. I think I want to spend the rest of my life with, but how do I become one with this person? That's the rub. That's the difficulty. It's what we all desire, but few ever acquire that. And, and part of the reason that I think few people acquire that is because um, there are a lot of voices telling us about love, what love is like or what love should be. Uh, Gary Chapman um, told us that love speaks five different languages. And, and if you want to be able to speak the right language, you've got to learn the right language, right? It's like learning something else. It's outside of you. It's foreign to you. And then extreme came along and, and it told us that love is more than words. Well, wh wait a minute. I thought love was a language and now you're saying it's more than words and I don't really um, get that. And then DC Talk, uh, DC Talk came along and they said, no, uh, love is actually a verb. So it is a, a word and it's a verb. And so we go, what, what do we believe? Who are we supposed to listen to? Who are we supposed to follow? How do we, how do we get this? So I want to wrap up this um, series giving you a mental picture of, of love within um, marriage. And so I want you to think of your marriage like a house. Uh, let's call it uh, a love shack. Uh, lack of a better um, term. Uh, and so in, in this love shack, there is a, there's a living room. There is also a dining room. There's a kitchen. There's a, a bedroom and, and there's a bathroom. And this, there might be more than this, but um, think about it uh, like master bedroom, master bathroom. And, and these rooms in the house of love, in your love shack, they, they uh, function kind of like a, a funnel. I tried to try to create them on the screen like a funnel. Uh, most people who come to your home won't make it past the living room, right? We have way more people in our house in the living room than we have in any other room of, of the house. And so that's the largest part of the funnel. In most of our houses, maybe I could say all of our houses, uh, the front door opens into what room? The living room, right? And so we, we let people we don't even like into the living room. 
You'll, you'll invite people. You might be brave enough to invite a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon into your living room. You're like, come on. Like, I don't even like you, but come in because this is what I'm supposed to do, right? We're supposed to invite people into our um, living room. Y- years and years and years ago when, uh, when Andrew and I were down in, in Leon, uh, th- there was a, a, a young man that I heard about was uh, walking on the highway and I, uh, I, I jumped in the car and I drove down there to, to find him. Um, and and this young guy was uh, sexually trafficking himself between uh, uh, trucker lots and stuff. And he'd gotten kicked out of a truck that he was in uh, along the highway. He had, he had nothing. And he was just walking down the road. And so um, we, we brought him to the house and into the living room. And we gave him some food, and he sat on the chair, and he fell asleep while we were in the middle of a conversation. I'm riveting, apparently. Uh, and, and, and so, um, you know, we, we let a lot of people in, into our living room. Living room's kind of a safe uh, space, you know, to co- come in, and people we like, people we don't like. But, but, the, um, but the number of people gets sm- smaller as you go down the rooms. Also, the level of intimacy... The number of people gets smaller as you go down the funnel. The level of intimacy increases as you go uh, as you down this. You work through the, the rooms. You move from one room to the another. In the living room, uh, again, friends, but also strangers, because um, we open our front door to, to just about um, everybody. Um, almost nobody makes it to the master bathroom. You don't just open that up to anybody. Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of private. <laughs> the bathroom in the house, that's, that's one of the, like, you can use the upstairs, you can use the guest bath, um, but you can't come down and, uh, you can't use the master bath. Um, so consider that each one of these rooms represents a aspect of your marriage. The living room is the public side of, of your, um, marriage. Uh, it's, it's best expressed with, with friends um, or, or family. And living rooms are often very public. Right? My friends, the Halpins back there, Dave and Deanna, um, they, they have one of those massive uh, uh, picture windows in their living room. And I got to tell you, we've been friends now for 15 years or something. Um, I have not once caught Dave in his underwear <laughs> in the living room. And I think it's because they have this great, like we often sneak up to the house and look through the window to see what's going on because they just leave their curtains open all the time. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but, but I would be like, Dave's always in his, in his pajama bottoms when I see him in there. But, uh, you know, if, if you, like, this is the living room picture, right? Anybody can walk in the door at any time. You don't know who's going to come to the door. Somebody might be checking up on you on your car's warranty insurance information. You got to be there to open the door and, and, and let them in. So the living room is this public part of, of, of marriage. Um, we, we might associate the living room with, like, agape love because, because we let people in. And, and for the most part, the living room is kind of this unconditional place that, that happens. It's, it's welcoming. It's the unconditional time. I may not really like you, but you can come in my living room and sit down for a little bit. Uh, but you're, you, you might not make it any farther than that. 
And, and so the dining room is, is, is a next step, right? There, there are fewer people that you're going to invite over to have a meal with. We, we, we do, and especially today, I think today's society, we go a long time before having somebody at our house sit down at our dining room table to share a meal with. And so the people that we, we invite into our dining room, we have a closer relationship with them already, or we want a closer relationship with them. Well, there's a connection somehow, and, and we want to spend more time with them. And so come over to the house, sit down at the table, um, and we're going to eat this meal. And so we typically have a closer relationship. It's a fewer number of people uh, who are at the table. And, and often it's not strangers that are sitting down at the table sharing a meal with us. The, the dining room represents a stronger connection in relationship, maybe like um, phileo. Uh, love and, and remember phileo love is the is the friendship it's the brotherly love it's the camaraderie kind of love that we have and we'll sit down around the dining room table and we'll share that kind of love right and we'll talk and we'll laugh and we'll have a, a good a good time and and certainly there's an aspect of friendship within your marriage I, I don't just love Andy I enjoy being with her in fact, of all the people that I know, I would rather be with her, quite honestly. And I love some of you guys. Uh, and I spend, I spend time with you. But you, you don't look like her. And so I, she's my friend, and I want to spend um, t- time with her. I like being around her. I like spending time with her. Um, so fewer people are in the dining room. Um, there's even fewer people who are allowed and in, in, in invited into the kitchen to, like, prepare a meal. If, if you want to test your relationship, go home after church today, and both of you go into the kitchen to make a meal. That is a test of your marriage relationship. Whenever I am in the kitchen and Andrea is making something, I am always in the way. No matter where I go in the kitchen, I am in the way. And I, don't, I think it's like... It's like the smoke of a fire. Wherever I move, that she goes, oh, I know what's in that cupboard. He needs to get out of the way so I can get it. And I, maybe she doesn't even need those things. I don't know. But she, wherever I move, she's going to ask me to get out of the, the way. And so if you want to test that relationship, go in there. She usually wants me out of the, the kitchen um, no, no matter what because um, I'm in, in the way. And so I think the kitchen might represent storge. Uh, love and storge is is familial it's family love it's that relationship because you can get mad about somebody in the kitchen and then when the cooking's over and you're out of the kitchen you you can kind of forget about that right you can kind of let it let it go but the other thing I think about the kitchen is there's always work to do in the kitchen in there there's always dishes to be done or dishes to be put away in the kitchen Always something to do in, in the kitchen. And in your married life, there's always something to do, right? There's somebody needs this balance. And, and maybe, you, you know, if you're a guy, you go, I don't really get the kitchen thing. It's the garage. If your wife came out and hung out with you in the garage, she would always be in the way. Whatever you were going, whatever you were doing. It's the same, it's the same thing. And so the kitchen is, is where things get, get, um, get done. Um, if, if you got to be, uh, you got to be pretty close in your relationship to handle that level of intensity. For many uh, people, though, um, there's even a fewer number who are allowed anywhere near the master bedroom in in your home. And and often, if you see the master bedroom in somebody's house, it's because you're getting a tour of their house. 
and you've come over for the first time and just say, oh, let's, let me show you uh, around, um, around the house. And so we just don't let people into our, into our bed. A married couple just, like, look, if you've got kids, I know, they're in there all the time, they're in your space, but you would rather have them not be there, right? I mean, it's just because you can't stop them from coming in. That's why they're there. But you can stop other people. And there are a lot of people who make it in the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, and never make it to the, to the bedroom. You don't get to go in. And you might get a peek in if the door gets left open a, a little bit, but that's as far, uh, that's as, far as, it, as it goes. Few people are allowed into this, um, into this space. Uh, the bedroom, master bedroom, represents vulnerability. This is where you sleep. Uh, this is where, while you're sleeping, the one you're sleeping with could kill you. That's vulnerable. Some of you are going to have a hard time sleeping tonight. Don't make her mad. That's why the Bible says, don't go to bed angry. Because they could kill you. Um, the, the bedroom is where the intimate side of love um, takes in. I put eros in parentheses because eros is a little bit stronger than this, but, but, but you're intimate in, in the bedroom. You're sleeping together. You're next to each other. You can touch each other. There's a, uh, there's a comfortableness there. In fact, the next verse that we didn't read in Genesis says Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. That's what happens in the bedroom. You can be yourself there. You can let your guard down. You, you would not, Dave, you would not be naked typically in the living room. Especially if you have a, a ha I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. But let's just say you're a normal person who has some boundaries. You're not going to be naked in the living room. But you will be in, in, in the bedroom. And, and so there's that vulnerability that we share with the person that we're married to that we don't share or show to um, everybody else. Um, there's a strong connection there. Husband and wife can be themselves in the, in the bedroom. This is where you cuddle. If she's a cuddler, um, my wife is not a cuddler. Feel sorry for me. Um, but you're close there. There's, there's nothing between you um, in the bedroom. And, and finally, uh, finally, the master uh, bathroom there. This, this room, this room is limited. In, in most of our houses, uh, if you have a master, master bathroom, you don't want anybody else in, in the master bedroom. It's, uh, it's private, and it, and it represents um, eros, the physical, the passionate side of, of love. Um, and there's a, there's a reason for that. <laughs> the master bathroom is, no matter how big your master bathroom is, it is the smallest of all these rooms in, in the house. Everything's bigger. You got a bigger master bathroom, you probably have a bigger master bedroom, kitchen and living room and all that kind of stuff. And so the, the master bath is the smallest of the rooms, and um, sex is given the smallest amount of time in our marriages. So it fits, right? I, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. The things that happen in the bathroom are 100% natural. Literally everybody does it. I could get in a lot of trouble here. Literally everybody uses the bathroom, right? It's natural. We go, oh, it's ev everybody, 
Everybody does it. But what happens in the master bathroom is considered dirty. And so you don't want anybody else around when you're in there. And for most of you, please don't tell me if it's not true, that's the same for sex. I don't want anybody else around. I don't want anybody else seeing. It's limited. This is a private thing. This is what happens between couples. And so while the front door, the door to the living room opens to pretty much anybody, um, the master bathroom door is the last door to be opened in a relationship. You, you got to be pretty comfortable with that other person to leave that door open. Some of you guys should feel a little less comfortable just speaking for your wives. Please shut the door. Turn on the fan, shut the door. Just, okay. Um, even though the master bathroom is the smallest room in the house, it's where we spend probably the least amount of time uh, than any of the rooms we've talked about. I would not want the master bathroom to be taken away from my house. I like that. I don't want it to be gone. And, and I would be unhappy if somebody uh, closed the door to the master bathroom and said, um, you can't come in here because I'm mad at you. <laughs> I hope you're getting the connection here. You didn't do what I wanted you to, and so you can't come to the bathroom. That, I do not want that. And, and probably most of you are uh, in the same um, position. I don't want to get rid of the bathroom. Even though it's small, it's vital to our lives. And, and hopefully you can see that just um, every room functions, it has a purpose in your house. Every aspect of your marriage has a purpose and a function that is equally important. And so husbands and wives, if you neglect the stuff that happens in the other rooms of your house, you will find that what happens in the, in the bedroom, in the bathroom, is bothered, right? It's, it doesn't function correctly. It's not right. Something's wrong. And so sometimes as guys, we, we want to go, uh, I want access to my bathroom. But, but we forget that we have blown it in the living room, in the dining room, in the kitchen, in the bedroom. And so we've got to make sure that all of these rooms function appropriately, that, that, we're, that we're dealing, that we're loving our spouse in all of the different areas of, of love. And so I think Gary Chapman was right, and I think DC Talk was right, and, and, and sometimes love does stink. And so, but, but when you find a way to function in each of those rooms and every aspect of love together in your marriage, life just gets better and so if you neglect one, you're going to suffer in, in all of them. And so you know your relationship. You know your love shack at, at home. What room for you in your marriage relationship has been neglected? That's the challenge this week. Where, where's the problem? Fix it. If you got a problem, you call the plumber or the electrician. What, you, you get it, you deal with it, you get it fixed, and you get back to normal. And so what room has been neglected? Deal with it. Enjoy discovering how to become one again. So for marriage to work as God intended, every room 
of your house has to work. Every room has to work. You can't take away one and expect all the others to compensate because they're not used for the same thing. It doesn't work that way. So just as a well-functioning home, all the rooms, all the aspects of our marriage need to work together. And so if something isn't working in the living room, things are going to be difficult in in the bedroom. Men, if you're a a jerk to your wife in the living room or the kitchen, things are going to be tough in the the bedroom and the bathroom. The, The appropriate level of love must be expressed in every room of the house for your marriage to function as God intended it. And so we need to be wise, as Scripture says. We need to dig down. We need to build our homes on the rock, the foundation of the Word of God, so that, so that our homes will be able to weather any storm, that our relationships will be able to weather um, any storm. So I look forward to your emails and calls and conversations next week. As you say, couldn't stop talking about things in relationship to room in, in the house. And so you're going to go home and go, hey, honey, let's go to the bathroom. And everybody around you is going to go, what in the world are you talking But you're going to know because you're special and you attend real life, church. Uh, let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and for showing us what love is through your son, through your own love expressed to us through your son. And, and God, um, marriage is difficult. It, it wasn't designed to be by you in, in the garden, but we have made it difficult because we blew it, and we don't show love. We're very selfish, and, and we can be cruel and, and, and cutting. And yet, God, this is the path that we're on, the two becoming one, no matter how difficult it is or struggle it is. This is the goal for us, and when it happens, oh, it's beautiful, but sometimes it's a struggle to get there. And so help us, Father, to order uh, every room in our home, to order uh, love and, and the expressions of the different types of love in our marriage and to our children and our families and to our neighbors and to those uh, around us that we come into contact with. God, the goal is that every marriage be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And we fail in that a lot, but help us to aim for that goal. Um, Give us the desire, the ability, the strength to work through the difficult things, to deal with the rooms that have been neglected in our homes so that we can have the kind of house where where you are Lord and we're able to be um, like Adam and Eve were. We're able to be exposed to each other and, and yet have no shame and no guilt and no fear toward one another. Father, thank you for marriage and what it, what it means and, and, um, and, and for the goal. Uh, and thank you, God, for just relationships that we have with, with others when marriage isn't even a part of that process, but just the ability to connect with other people in meaningful ways. Father, thank you for love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, next Sunday we are starting a new series, and so uh, love to have you. Join me here for me, myself, and I as we talk about how to deal with sin, selfishness, and all those kind of things. Um, So way to go, Mike. I'll see you guys Sunday. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in to Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. 
head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time. Thank you.